I mean, I think the simplest way to understand machine learning is just to think about how the machines that we build simplify the tasks that we need to accomplish in day-to-day life. Sean Kennedy oversees the development of machine learning at Nokia Bell Labs. Part of his job is shifting how we as humans relate to technology, from something we program to something that learns on its own. There's so many things that we do where automation makes sense. And I think machine learning, as we look at it nowadays, is just a natural evolution of these tools that we've seen through history. Machine learning and artificial intelligence can inspire dystopian fiction. Think of Will Smith battling an army of -of out-of-control robots to save humanity. More realistically, they can trigger concerns about ever-smarter technology slowly but steadily replacing human labor. So the question is, how do we develop this technology responsibly? I am disappointed because I think we've, for the last few years at least, focused on trivial problems of no particular human value. And you could argue that, in fact, perhaps deleterious human value. Marcus Weldon is the president of Nokia Bell Labs and corporate CTO of Nokia. Both he and Sean agree on a novel strategy for developing better machine learning. And it just so happens that the key ingredient already exists in our brains. And I think the challenge now is to think about how do we leverage that insight to extend it to higher order general artificial intelligence? How do we build this machine learning system that allows us to incorporate lots of the ideas that we as humans use day to day in our thinking to build larger, more powerful, and more interesting machine learning and artificial intelligence systems. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. Today, we'll explore how a decades-old breakthrough in behavioral psychology is driving a new approach to machine learning. This episode is entitled, Thinking for Two. I just want to get a sense of, I discussed the future of machine learning with Sean and Marcus on a recent video call. The two have worked together for years, and Marcus has seen Sean rise through the ranks to his current position, head of algorithms, analytics, augmented intelligence, and device lab at Nokia Bell Labs. That sounds like four jobs. Yeah, not really for jobs. I mean, it's just the way that we view the world at Bell Labs. We think of these problems or these problem spaces in a very integrated way. Sean's interest in machine learning began in earnest while he was earning his master's at the University of Alberta. But it wasn't until he joined Bell Labs that he fully realized the possibilities at hand. You know, recent examples, including AlphaZero, which is a product from Google DeepMind, which now plays Go and chess and a whole host of Atari games better than humans can ever play them, has learned to do this with zero interaction from humans. These machines aren't just learning on their own. They're providing frameworks for tackling ever larger problems in the realm of AI. One well-known approach is a neural network which is an algorithm that emulates the way our brain stores and processes information. Machine learning is often associated with neural networks and neural networks with AI. And so AI and ML are often put together, artificial intelligence and machine learning. But you would probably say that machine learning and AI are not actually synonymous. Would you? 
No, I mean, I think of AI as the bigger space, right? And in many ways, I think it of including mathematics and statistics and, you know, a whole host of other analytic techniques, you know, and what it uh, encompasses. And machine learning is just a special set of tools which have been derived from data, as I said before, to help us attack these problems. At the core of Sean's approach to machine learning is an idea that helped turn Daniel Kahneman into a Nobel Prize winner in 2002. Kahneman is a behavioral psychologist who came up with a theory for how humans process information. As he explains in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, our brains have two modes of thinking. One is fast, unconscious, and energy efficient. It's why you pull your hand back when something is hot, or how you can process words instantaneously. If I say two plus two, the answer comes four immediately to you don't have to put any conscious effort into thinking about the answer to this problem. So system one is autopilot. Yeah, I think it's autopilot, but I think the surprising thing is it does more than that. It's constantly feeding you all these answers and responses automatically without you asking for it or necessarily wanting it all the time. Kahneman refers to this as system one. From an evolutionary perspective, this style of thinking has obvious survival benefits. Like, say if you needed to make a quick fight-or-flight response. But what about more complex decisions? You can't solve a puzzle just by looking at its pieces or drive a car if you've never sat behind a wheel. So it turns out we have another type of thinking to help us process more difficult tasks. It's called System 2. Yeah, so System 2, I think, is the system that we like to think of ourselves as. It's the slow, effortful, conscious, analytical, often correct system that we engage for much more difficult problems. Unlike System 1, System 2 is energy-intensive and can be all-consuming. It's the machinery your brain employs when you look at a difficult math problem, or that brief mental pause when Marcus asked Sean a particularly thought-provoking question. Sean, have we lost you? No, I'm just thinking. He's going into uh, System 2 thinking here. He went into System 2 mode, exactly. He may never come out. I may never come out, yeah. It's my happy place. In a now-famous study... Kahneman asked participants to watch a video of people passing a basketball and to keep track of how many times it traveled back and forth. And about 15 seconds into the video, a gorilla or someone in a gorilla suit walks across the screen, pounds its chest in the middle of the screen, and then keeps walking across. And I think when they did this study originally, something like 50% of people failed to realize this this gorilla, and actually didn't even acknowledge after the fact that it was the same video. They were just that clueless because they were that focused on that singular task. So in that case, and by the way, I was one of the guilty ones. I didn't see the gorilla. But a system two task in that case is just simple counting. And so that's a really good example, I think, Sean, of just how the interchange of system one and two happens and how preoccupying system two can be to the detriment of actually living in our real world, which creates the need for system one to actually quickly answer as many questions as possible so that we've got enough time to be in system two mode and survive. This point Marcus is making is especially important. We need a balance of system one and two thinking in order to survive. Sean says we should have the same combination in artificial intelligence, but we don't. Most market-ready applications of machine learning, things like facial and image recognition, they're system one in nature. Whereas self-driving cars, 
a system two like technology, that's still years in the making. What we really want or what we all feel is lacking when we think about current machine learning tools is things that we would assign as system two tasks. That is really the challenge is how do we build upon what we've learned already and start to attack this harder and more important space of system two type thinking. By training algorithms that can recognize images, we free ourselves from having to do mundane tasks. And this is just system one. What Sean is saying is that if we can crack the ceiling of system two machine learning, we'd unlock a whole new realm of productivity. I'm wondering, is one way to define success in terms of moving machine learning forward when seemingly or previously system two sort of tasks become easy enough for the machine that it almost enters back into like a system one. You know, the more complex things become more autopilot plus plus. That's exactly how we envision the space moving forward is not only as we've built system one, now let's build system two, but rather that these systems should be playing this constant dance with one another. So what's preventing us from crossing this threshold? How can we take a system two task and train a computer to do it as if it were a simple math problem. One part is that researchers are still grappling with the complexities of certain machine learning applications. With video analytics, a huge problem that they're going after right now is predicting what frame comes next. It's one thing to analyze a static photo, but in video recognition, you're dealing with an image that changes upwards of 30 times in a single second. And this is turning out to be an incredibly challenging problem for the exact same reason. Just the complexity of things no longer being static makes this problem so much more difficult to understand. Well said. Before we go on, I just want to raise the point that a baby, a human baby, can perform this video processing task within weeks of being born. Obviously, it takes a little while to get visual acuity and understanding, but this is a task that a baby can perform with trivially in a matter of weeks after being born, and it's one that machines haven't solved. Sean goes on to say that it's not just a matter of difficulty that's holding us back from System 2 machine learning. He says it's also a matter of priorities. I think actually we fell in love with the technology too. We fell in love with the fact that these convolutional neural networks could now exceed human capabilities for, say, recognizing things, cats, I guess, in YouTube videos. And we simply went down the road of Let's see how far we can push this technology without asking the question, what is problems that we should go after and how should we apply this technology? Even when there's an intention behind the application, it can still be tricky to reuse machine learning tools for new problems. The approach to winning checkers may not work for self-driving cars or voice recognition. At one point, it almost sounded like Sean was disappointed by the overall progression of machine learning. These approaches aren't generalizable. They're not easy to understand how you would use them in other more complicated domains, etc. But no, I, I don't feel disappointed with where machine learning is right now. I feel like we do have an obligation to attack this space and to take it to the next level. There's a very popular curve in the tech business called the Gartner hype cycle. Marcus looks at the same question of disillusionment through something called the Gartner Hype Cycle. The concept applies to the introduction of groundbreaking technology. At first, people flock to implement it, 
And in the Gartner hype cycle, there's a fervor that appears for a technology, and then it reaches a peak of hype at the top of the hype curve, and then it drops into what's called the trough of disillusionment before it emerges into the zone of productivity or the plateau of productivity. You can imagine this model as a roller coaster track. There's a climb, a drop, and then a flat section. Marcus says we've reached the peak of our ascent, and now we're about to take a plunge into this trough of disillusionment. Facial recognition is one example, but so are self-driving cars. There's a mess of variables to iron out before you can put an algorithm behind the wheel of a two-ton bullet. But Marcus says he's hopeful that a System 1, System 2 approach could at least put us on the right track. But what will come out of that if we do the right things with System 1 and System 2 building, as Sean has described, is the plateau of productivity, where you actually come out and say, we've solved the right problems in the right way, and humanity can advance. Maybe some of you are having a strong System 1 reaction right now. How can Daniel Kahneman's theories help us reach a more equitable phase of machine learning if we can't even overcome our own biases? We can't help our biases because we've sort of built them into our system one by upbringing and culture and experience. So they're there. And again, Marcus says the solution might come from within. That by building system two machine learning, we might reinforce the same capacity for thoughtfulness in ourselves. I really like that as a, not just a metaphor, but an allegory for how perhaps we'll evolve as a species to be a bit more thoughtful and with less prejudice and bias. This symbiotic relationship defines how Bell Labs is pioneering a new approach to machine learning. They're looking at this technology not just as a tool, but as a new way of approaching industry and our passions. I think you'll start to see machines that interact with humans in much more natural ways, whether this is in an industrial setting or non-industrial setting. And I think we'll also start to see machines that are more and more powerful for humans to be able to use and to augment us in our day-to-day tasks. So whether it makes us better musicians or better writers or what have you, I think we'll start to see this down the road. And maybe down that road, we'll see a shift from us teaching machines to them teaching us. It's the system that can advise you on all things in a contextual, personalized way and check you against your biases and help you perform tasks as perfectly as you can and control machines that help you complete the task when it's beyond your human capability. Now, I would say that's the 30-year horizon, but uh, we'll see steps along the way for every few years. That's something to look forward to then, as long as it doesn't have the same outcome as HAL in a 2001 Space Odyssey. Exactly. We want to avoid certain outcomes. And we, of course, want to avoid replacing human podcasters. For more information on today's topics, please check out our show notes. And if you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts so new listeners can find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was executive produced and narrated by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation. Our producer and writer is Max Wasserman. The show was recorded and mixed at Audiation Studios at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble. 
who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.